created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or our guest questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I will try to get to you, but I do ask that everyone be respectful. Today's guest is Christine McDonald, author of the book, Face Value from Stripper Pole to Bearing My Soul, which actually comes out today. And you could actually, if you are interested, that scrolling fortune cookie right there in the middle of your screen, that will take you to purchase her book. Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, thank so you. I, <laughs> I wanted to get to, to it because I feel like there's so much to cover um, with your story. You have struggled a lot um, with trauma as a child, which eventually led you into the adult entertainment industry. Um, I just want to know if you could just share your journey a little bit with us. Oh, I'm happy to. And you're right. There's there's a whole bunch of it's like Wheel of Fortune. Name <laughs> name that trauma. But here's, <laughs> but here's the thing: don't we all have something in our lives? And of course, it's not a mm-hmm. contest, right? So every single one of us, I'm of the belief that we're all in recovery from something. And of course, more, uh, you know, there are some people who have uh, a harder journey. But yes, I've had uh, some sev- several traumas as a child that it really just compounded uh, my choices that I made as a young adult. So I started out um, the the trauma really started when I was at age 13. And I just, you know, 13 is such a tender age as it is, right? Mm. I mean, you're a freshman in high school. And y- y- exactly. And mm. so all of a sudden, I started noticing these big uh, blood filled cysts all over my face, my chest, mm. my back. And I didn't know what was going on. And I, I just kept telling my mom, this is, I don't think this is normal acne. And, you know, God love my mom. She just was like hoping it would just go away. And it didn't. So we ended up needing to see a doctor. Turns out my diagnosis was, uh, is very, very rare. It's called acne conglobata. And basically you're, it's a very severe severe form of cystic acne where uh, normal topical solutions, that, that's just not part of the remedy for this case. So I started seeing a doctor, and um, but it was too late at that point. The scars were left. And mm. long story short, you know, they called me Freddy Krueger in high school. They were merciless. Ugh. And it was just one of those things where my value was, um, you know, as all of ours, I think when they're at, at that young, impressionable age, my value was just really predicated on how people thought of me. And so when people started calling me, you know, Moonface, Pizza Face, Freddy Krueger, my self-esteem just plummeted. Mm. And so on top of that, um, I I reached out to any substances I could find. And it, it was the 80s. So, you know, cocaine was the glamour drug. And so that sort of just compounded the trauma with living with this disease all over my skin and my body. And then, 
I was sexually abused at, at that same year at 13, but I was so warped with my thinking that I, I really truly thought it meant I was pretty. Like somebody, mm-hmm. somebody taking my virginity, somebody um, was giving me attention sexually, even though my face was, you know, covered in these blood filled cysts, purple golf ball sized cysts that would break open in my sleep. Um, so it was just a whole little I mean, it was definitely <laughs> it was definitely a lot. But uh, it it's interesting. I mean, and I think you can attest to this when you suffer trauma and you know you can add to that verbal and physical abuse in the house yeah um it's just it really it shapes your choices as a young adult and that's where I fell into the stripping world because you know along the heels of being called Freddy Krueger I was 19 years old when I was asked to do a wet t-shirt contest so I walked into this world in Waikiki right which is such a just just a position because it's like (laughs) supposed to be paradise and I'm I'm going through all this darkness but I found my beauty on stage because I took somebody giving me a dollar bill as validation that I was pretty much like the sexual abuse was validation Mm. that I was pretty so that's sort of the journey and that's what I talk about in the book and really it's about how I got out of it how I pulled myself out of that world after uh, a near decade of trying to find my self-worth very long-winded answer for no no it's great you could keep going on um Mm -hmm. but i do you know it kids are horrible teenagers are can be so horrible i remember as a in middle school i i had horrible teeth my teeth actually i had teeth growing behind my teeth because my mouth was so small and so crowded and i remember throwing and i tell the story a lot um uh, i remember throwing like um an m&m and catching it in my mouth and i guess my mouth was open and tilted back where everyone could see like another like more teeth behind my regular Mm -hmm. teeth and they were Mm -hmm. and they started calling me shark's teeth for the longest time and that's that's, really yeah it's hard it's hard um because kids can be ruthless when it comes to to you know making fun of people because they're insecure too teenagers are very insecure people Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they don't understand that you know the reason why they're making fun of other people is because their own they have their own issues that they they are too scared to deal with um but so true. I, so true. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, I, I find it interesting that you know when you were sexually abused. Did you? So you, your, your thinking was warped. You mentioned. Mm-hmm. But when did you realize that that was that was wrong? That that was that that was that was rape. I guess it was rape. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you say that because I'm talking years, decades. I first of all. I knew something wasn't right because (laughs) after the incident, I thought he was my boyfriend. I honestly thought he was my boyfriend, which is very sad, but it's very telling of where my mind was at the time. So I became this little stalker in high school. And this dude was, you know, he was 16 years old. I was 13. And it was just one of those things where I truly thought that meant I was pretty and that he was my boyfriend. So I got a clue pretty early on when the rumors started swirling. And quite honestly, it took me an intensive therapy and I was in my early 40s. So that's a long time, right? Mm. I was in my 40s and I finally was able to, number one, forgive myself because I felt like I was very confused. I knew there was something not right about it, but I didn't want to call it rape. And quite honestly, you know, Amy Schumer says this in her book, 
um, she talks about something very similar. She was passed out. um, She was taken advantage of without her consent. So when I shared that with my therapist, I felt like I wasn't like I didn't qualify, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. when people when people think rape, they think it's a brutal attack and and all of these things. I, I was passed out and I was 13 and I woke up and I didn't have anything on my bottoms. And it was a it was a beach canoe paddling camp. I mean, you can't get more Hawaiian than that, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's canoe paddling camp. My bathing suit was rolled up in a ball. It had blood on it. So I knew something was up, but it took Mm. so long for me to really wrap my head around the fact that, yeah, it was rape and it's okay. I mean, the rape wasn't okay, but it's okay Mm. that it happened. It wasn't my fault. Um, So a lot of insight with therapy to truly understand and then also forgive myself Mm. and then forgive to forgive this person. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a violent attack, but it just definitely was something that changed the course of my life. So, and then when you went to, you said at 19, you were asked to do this wet t-shirt contest. Mm-hmm. And this was, what was that feeling when you were asked and when you eventually, you, you did it, I'm assuming. Yes, I did it. And, you know, it's interesting because I was with one of my uh, girlfriends and she's in the book prominently. And it's a funny, funny way how we met. And I won't spoil it for you. But <laughs> she, she she was the other woman. I found her information in who I thought was my boyfriend. You can see the theme here. Um, very toxic partner. He was 10 years older than I was. He was a drug dealer. I mean, all sorts of bad news, which, of course, I was completely attracted to. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I found this woman's information in his things. And so I just picked up the phone and called her and said, look, I don't know if you know this, but I'm with this guy. And then she said, oh, oh, my God, I had no idea. Anyway, long story short, her and I became girlfriends. She is beautiful and and you know, one of those Barbie doll looking girls that are just so natural, not like fake plastic Barbie doll, but I'm talking like the quintessential Christy Brinkley of her time, you Mm. know? And so her and I were together on the beach and, you know, we were young, we had rocking bodies, but she was the, she was the beauty queen. Right. And I did not feel uh, like I was approached because of me. I was approached to be, we were both approached because of her. And so she basically told the gentleman who was recruiting women for these wet t-shirt contests. She'll, she says, I'll do it if my girlfriend can do it. And that, that was me. And she says, she's a great dancer, which is true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the way that I felt when I was on that stage and of course, you know, substances were involved. So that's always, um, Something that I, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, The way I felt on stage with my big Bon Jovi bushel of 1987 hair and my gold eyeshadow for (laughs) the first, for the first time ever, I felt beautiful. I felt like I was hiding in plain sight, meaning my face was exposed, but it was, it was just covered in, in all of this eighties hair. But truly that dollar that people were giving me on stage was so validating and just a big, like, look at who's Freddy Krueger now. You know what I mean? Like just three years, just three years earlier, I was cutting school because I was so uh, tormented. So I felt nothing but validation and power and beautiful. So, and this was your parlay into, into the adult entertainment world or how, how did, how did you start your career in that, in adult entertainment? 
Well, ironically enough, I won the contest, which was Mm. thrilling. And I was offered a job at this topless bar. Now, in Waikiki, uh, back then, I can't speak to the scene now, but back then, the age where you could disrobe, it was a topless bar, was 21. So I bikini danced until I was 21. And by the time I... You know, by the time I had my 21st birthday, I was so desensitized with it. It was like no big deal to take my top off. And then the next day, um, I had some customers say, well, now that you're 21, you could make make even more money if you go up the street to the nude bar. And so I was just full throttle all the way through, you know, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Did you experience any trauma during your career as an, an adult entertainer? I did. I did. And mostly drug related, mostly with men. And I would have to say, of course, I don't, you know, I don't subscribe to the uh, the idea that I deserved it. But my choices were uh, definitely a part of that. I chose very toxic partners, um, the drugs and all of that. So the trauma was sort of a revolving door hamster wheel of you know, it's interesting, the juxtaposition where you feel so powerful and beautiful, but at the same time, you're, you're, mm-hmm. and for me personally, I can't speak to other dancers, but I felt beautiful and powerful, but it was stripping my beauty away little by little, if that makes sense. Did you think of that at the time, though? No, no, I, I didn't. Only when I was writing my story, I was like, oh, man, I want to give that little girl a hug. Oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Trauma really just builds on trauma if you're not healing it, right? It's, you know, it just, like you said, the substances and the coping that you, and typically it's maladaptive until you realize it. Um, When did you become aware? When, When did you decide to get out of the adult entertainment industry? Great question. I was in my late 20s. And you know when you're in your, you know when you're facing the barrel of 30 and you think you're getting so old, you're mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be 30. So I, I, I can't, you know, I don't understand the lifeline of when people go to college, you know, the normies, the people that do it the right way, right? So here <laughs> I am. And my, my college really was the stripping years. And I recall being so burnt out. And this is in the book. There's a chapter called Voluntary Termination that I'm very proud of. And it really goes and explains step by step how I came to the realization. And it was very, very quiet. It was very simple. And I was in the dressing room. I was 20, I would say late 20s. And I and it was very heavy on my mind thinking, oh, my gosh, am I going to be a senior citizen on the poll? Because, of course... <laughs> When you're 30, you think you're a senior citizen. <laughs> so, oh, goodness. I'm, right? And so I'm looking <laughs> in the mirror and I'm, and I'm using my foundation and I'm covering my skin. And I'm, you know, I've always had this relationship with my skin where I have for decades tried to pretend my scars did not exist. But now, um, as I'm older, I embrace my scars because they're part of who I am. And I always say your flaws are your flavor. So anything that you feel embarrassed about or that you've been teased about, those things make up who you are. They're part of your flavor. So mm-hmm. embrace them. But back then, I didn't, I wasn't there yet. So here I am in the dressing room, tons of girls behind me, the clickety clack of their heels and the buzz, you know, all the buzz of the girls. I don't know if you've been around a a bunch of high girls, but they're like birds. 
walk. Oh you my know, gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah, and so they're like, la, 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 la. so I'm I'm trying to focus on putting my makeup on. I'm kind of tuning out the girls behind me. I am really hungover, as per usual. That was just another day ending, and why, right? So I'm putting my makeup on, and something just hit me, and I thought, okay. And I'm looking in my eyes. I see no blue. It's all gray. And I saw myself like, wow, you're almost 30. What are you going to do with your life? You don't have a college education. You dropped out because you couldn't handle the hours because I was a party girl, right? And then at that very moment when I connected with my eyes, I see a brand new girl who I've never seen before come into the dressing room. And she was probably 19. Hmm. And I looked at her and I saw myself in her and I thought, God, I want to just hug her and tell her, save your money. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to tell you not to do this, but I want to tell you to save your money, stay off the drugs, have a good head on your shoulders. But I didn't. I stayed in my own lane. But just seeing that girl had me flashback of the near decade career that I had. And so without even realizing it, I started putting my makeup back in my bag. I zipped it up flung my dance bag over my shoulder, stood up and looked in the mirror and said out loud to myself, I think you're done. Oh, wow. And I just walked out and looked for a payphone because <laughs> there was no internet or cell phones <laughs> back then. Looked for a payphone, called my mom, who I was estranged with at the time. And God love her. She, I basically said, what are you doing? And I was almost crying because I was so scared. And I didn't know what my life was going to be. But I, of course, wanted my mommy. And so I called her up and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm cooking dinner. Do you want to come over? And I was so grateful for that because I did. I went over to her house and my sister had just had a baby. So she was holding her newborn. My mom was cooking spaghetti. So as soon as the front door opened, I just, I was welcomed by that amazing smell of home, you know? And I remember looking at my sister and I remember being at my mom's house and thinking, wow, just an hour earlier, I was around naked Hi, girls. <laughs> Talking about, you know what I mean? And I thought, this is real life. This is what I want. And at that moment, I just asked my mom, I need to move home. I need to save up money because I'm going to get off this island and find a new life. Wow. Oh, so you grew up in Hawaii. And so your yes. mom was not far from where you were, were dancing. Correct. Yeah. And then unfortunately, she I was such a nightmare um, addict that she, I mean, I, I, I'm not a parent, so I can't even imagine. She just, I, I don't want to say gave up, but she was just, there was nothing she could do. There was no mm -hmm. talking to me. She was just like, she's going to need to find out on her own. And she prayed that I would come around. And, you know, I did, which is great. And so you found, you decided, okay, I'm, that road is not for me anymore. What did mm -hmm. you end up doing? I sold all of my belongings. I made the very naive choice to leave the island, which I don't think is really, a, it was not a bad decision. It's probably the best decision I ever made because I found myself um, really having to grow up. And, and I was in my late 20s. So I always say I lost, in a way, a decade of my life because I was using. And so I really left the island in mentally, like, 18 years old, 19 years old, because I'd lost so much of my life, but I was in my late twenties. And, um, I just knew that leaving was the best decision. 
and finding new friends and just starting over. But then, you know, a couple years later, I realized, oh, you can't run away from your addiction. So that was addressed as well, which is also in the book. But the best decision, the thing that really catapulted my change was leaving the island and just shaking off those those friends that you thought were friends, but they were just your party friends. So how did you, how did you work with your addiction? When did you realize, well, it sounds like you were like, okay, I can't, I can't escape this. How did you heal from it? Or how did you break the addiction or break any of these, you know, behavioral cycles or actually Mm -hmm. even be aware of the, the patterns? Well, interesting question, because I thought just leaving the island was enough. And I thought, oh, I'm such a rock star. I could walk away from the coke. I could walk away from the ecstasy and all those other things I was doing. And I was really um, snobby about it, to be honest with you. I thought, eh, I didn't need rehab. I'm good. I honestly did not think I was an addict until in my 30s, I had a relapse with prescription drugs. And that's a whole nother animal because in, in an addict's mind, you think, oh, this is from a doctor. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And of course, that doesn't, that's never the case. But um, realizing that I was an addict took me relapsing and being in a detox ward for a week and, and really understanding after going to meetings and things like, oh, yeah. So my party self in my 20s never left. I just changed the scenery. So getting real with yourself is um, not for the faint of heart, right? You have to take responsibility for your choices. And uh, yeah, once I I realized that the two were not um, so different, that my party self just manifested in other ways, then I was able to do the the work with therapy. Wow. So in that time, when you left this adult entertainment world and you were finding yourself, what was happening with your self-worth? Did it make, did it, did you want to go back to the stripping? How did you manage dealing with that, that feeling of finding your self-worth and, and, and yeah. needing, longing for that self-worth? Realizing that the real world wasn't going to save me and that the real world was actually a a lot harder than I thought. Um, How did I, how did I manage? Um, For a long time, I didn't. I I still suffered low self-esteem and that manifested in every single choice of partner I ever dated. And I had a therapist once tell me, I had a therapist once say, if you cut off all the heads of everyone you've ever dated, and I said, let's take a moment to just visualize that because (laughs) I kind of like that. But when, when this therapist said that to me, she says, they're interchangeable. You, you pick these fixer-uppers and then complain that there's no good people out there to date. It's because you don't feel like you're worthy of anyone who's good for you. Like, I did not feel I was worthy of a nice person. And also, when you grow up, and I think you can attest, when you grow up with chaos, we subconsciously create chaos because mm-hmm. that's home. You know, chaos is home. We don't understand when our phone's not blowing up, when we don't have any fires to put out, when we're not fretting whether the person we're seeing is cheating on us and digging through their phone for answers. All of those things are based on low Mm self-esteem. And I did not realize that at the time. And so I spent the better part of my 30s and 40s after I left the stage 
really having to work on my self-esteem. And then I finally got a clue when I was just exhausted from being heartbroken and realizing through therapy that I had more control than I thought. Like there, it's not that there are no good people out there. It's just that I'm choosing the ones that are bad for me because I just didn't feel like I was worth anyone better. Yeah. There's like, there's a comfort in the same people that you, you date in a way. Exactly. It's a familiarity that it's, um, it's hard to shake. It's like a trauma bond, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Did you, so what was it? Was there something that happened? Cause I feel I I'm dealing with this constantly now. I'm continuously working on feeling like I'm enough. Um, what was it that did it for you? Was there something that made it click besides her saying you have more control? Cause I feel like I can I do have control, but I mean, there are days where I'm just like, am I enough? And then oh, I question totally. it. <laughs> oh, totally. It's really a hard nut to crack. And it's so embedded into our our psyche because, um, you know, rewiring those parts of our brain, I think, is a lifelong journey. I mean, it's truly, uh, it's not easy to do. But the fact that we're aware of it is a huge plus, right? Like we know our intellect. I always say that, my, you know, our brains have the intellect side and then the emotional side. So when my emotional side starts to kick in and say, oh, who's going to read your book? You're not, you're nobody. You're not famous, blah, 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 blah. And then I have the other side, the intellect side that says, damn straight, everyone's going to read my book. This is a really great story and it's going to inspire people. So it's just balancing those two positive and negatives. Um, But surrounding yourself with people who lift you up and only want to see you succeed, that unconditional love, your sisterhood, your brotherhoods, people that are in your corner, that's what helps lift me and realize that I'm worth it. In fact, my best, best girlfriend, I was, um, I received congratulatory flowers from someone because of my book release and I was Mm. bawling because I'm not used to receiving love where there's no catch. Like I used to always think if I get love, then what's it going to cost me? Like it was a transactional thing. Well, when people truly love you, they don't want anything from you. They just love you who you are. And um, I texted my best girlfriend and I said, I'm really having a hard time believing I'm worth this. And she Mm. said, do you remember that movie Moonstruck with Cher? She said, snap snap out of it. (laughs) (laughs) She goes, you are worth it. Snap out of it. So surrounding yourself with people that truly, truly only want the best for you. They don't have any ulterior motives. There's nothing in it for them. I think that's huge. I think that really helps with your self-esteem. It really sounds like your mom was kind of that person. She was great. She had her own missteps. And I and I do explain that in the book. There are many things that, um, you know, she wishes she, and of course I do too, um, she didn't do or could have done better. But um, she's been my support system through this book, even though there's a part of her, of course, she's a mom. She doesn't want uh, the world to know that her baby made all these missteps and choices. But in the end, she's she's been great. Yeah, she's very worried about this book. But I told her, I said, look, anyone who mm-hmm. reads the book is going to know that you had your own missteps because you were raised by someone who was not healthy. 
So, you right. know, the cycle, it's a cycle, it's a right? Cycle. Exactly. Yeah. Well, looking back at the entertainment industry now, what are your, what are your personal thoughts? And it sounds like when, when that 19 year old girl walked through, you were like, you had a lot that you wanted to say to this person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting because I, since I've been promoting, self-promoting this book, I got on TikTok and I had no idea what to expect. You know, I'm a Gen Xer. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't even know how to do this whole business, but I'm going <laughs> to try because, you know, social media is basically the best advertisement you can do. And if you can gain a healthy following, it's a great way to get your message out, right? Mm -hmm. So I am on TikTok and most of my followers are current spicy dancers and they are absolutely amazing. Each and every one of them has a story. And I don't know if you've ever seen Orange is the New Black. Yeah. But you know how the template of that story is uh, you really get to know the backstory of every inmate and then you form an empathy that you didn't realize you could have for someone who was in prison right. because the chips were against them and whatever whatever resources they had to do, which of course isn't to say they shouldn't be imprisoned, but you want to have an idea of their why. And every single right. girl on stage, whether you're on stage or in a penitentiary, there's a reason. And they're not necessarily bad people. So I am finding myself, I feel like their aunt or their house mom. <laughs> and a lot of them come to me and say, you give me inspiration that there is life after the pole because it's a young woman's game. And like I said, I was almost 30 and I was freaking out that I was going to be a senior citizen on the poll. So I never judge them. I support them. And I just, if they ask my advice, because I never want to give it unsolicited, I just say, try and save some of your money and hold on to your, um, your self-love and your power, because it is a very seductive, pardon the pun, industry where you mm -hmm. can get really wrapped up in the drugs, you can get wrapped up in the money. And then, of course, the next thing you know, you're 30. <laughs> so you're <right>. <laughs> <laughs> and there you are. And there you are. <laughs> Is there, would you say, because I think a lot of that has to do with self-love and self-worth. Do you think people who go into, do you think there are people who go into the adult entertainment world who are already strong in their self-love and their self-worth? I do. I do. And I've worked with women that had their, can I swear? Of course, go for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've worked, I've worked with women who've had their shit together. Like they were college students. They were moms during the day and they were trying to supplement, you know, that trying to feed their child. Um, not all of the women that are, you know, choose the sex industry, the sex work industry, whether it's um, spicy dancing or now it's all virtual, right? They have, there's only fans, there's, oh, yeah. um, there's sex work in the, um, in the literal sense, which I, I never crossed over to do, but I have many friends that did all of those things. Um, you're not necessarily broken. Everybody has their own reason, mm -hmm. but um, I do find in my experience that I have come across women that did not think highly of themselves, but it's def it's very important to me that I, I want people to know that I do not put a blanket statement on anyone who chooses that industry, that they're all broken, you know, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it, 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 it is a theme 
it is a theme as with maybe other, you know, if you're in the modeling industry or anything like that, I can only imagine how toxic that would be as well. Right. Especially in the, in the day of filters, right. And all of these, you don't know what's real. And then these, these young women uh, go on to Instagram or, or whatever. And they think, Oh, my life, they, they compare themselves to these unrealistic uh, expectations. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think about, you know, I was a young journalist at a young, really, you know, a television station with a bunch of young, young people. And, you know, to want to be on TV, I mean, I feel like it's it's definitely not a glamorous job, may seem like it, but definitely is not. Um, But, you know, when I looked all around me there, you know, there are people who are broken. I feel like that. I mean, I'm not, like you said, I'm not saying everyone is, but Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're trying to find their voice. And I feel like that was kind of me, like people who were were not listened to, they got a job so that people will listen to them. Right. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I was, I was also that person as well. It's like, oh, I tried to find my voice working in this business, but you know, obviously that's, that's not what's going to fix it. Right. You have to look within yourself to be able to figure out why do I need this? What was I missing as a child Mm -hmm. in order for me, um, to pursue this, this career, this lifestyle, um, I think figuring out everyone's why I think it's is important. You know, I feel like yeah. if we understood everyone's why, there wouldn't be so much judgment. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Wouldn't it be great if everyone was like, you have mandatory therapy from age twenty, <laughs> <laughs> maybe younger, right? <laughs> maybe at thirteen right. when you're a teenager and there's hormones yeah. going and yeah, yes. I know. And the, and unfortunately, there's a lot of therapists out there that um, they're not that great. So <laughs> fi- finding a therapist that you can connect with that you have. Uh, that magical chemistry with is not easy. But once you find the right therapist, it really does help with that insight. And um, yeah, it's, it's definitely an eye opener when you find out that everything's connected, like everything's connected. That's why I talk about in the book, I have, I've had the wraith when I was 13, I had the skin disease, there's father abandonment, there was drinking in the house and all of these things, the bullying, the stripping, everything's linked you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, now that I'm in my 50s, I look through, especially the process of writing the book, I look through a different lens when I'm looking at that little girl. And I think, oh, of course, you ended up a stripper. And I'm not saying (laughs) that to be, you know, I'm saying it to be self deprecating, like, Mm -hmm. what chance did I have? Like, of course, I'm going to end up a stripper. But the, the thing that I want people to focus on is not the fact that I was a cliche, because I'm the first to say I'm a walking cliche, you know, but it's how I got out of it. Because I have to say, the women that I have reconnected with, because it's very difficult to try and find the girls that I used to work with, because you can't do a Google search on candy, right? You don't know their legal <laughs> names. <laughs> so, The women that I have reconnected with through the marvels of the internet, which wasn't around back in our day, God, I'm old. Um, They're, they're lawyers, they're attorneys, they're, they're doctors. And and this is just, you know, they own their own businesses. I have a friend that's a makeup artist in Hollywood. All of these wonderful uh, women that have excelled are, it's just so nice to know that people have come out the other side. And then, you know, there's other, other people that are no longer with us and, and all of those tragedies. But um, 
yeah, it, it can be an uplifting story. It doesn't have to be a dark cloud. Right. And yours is a very, very inspiring story. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Hmm. Don't compare yourself. If mm. there's any, and if there's any advice that I would give now, this goes for men too. I will say, especially when you're young and impressionable, especially in this age of social media, where the attention span of people is probably like two seconds, <laughs> right? Everybody's right. Everybody's and I'm guilty of it as well. All of a sudden it's seven o'clock and then it's midnight. I'm like, why have I been scrolling this whole time? But, <laughs> but the thing is it's, it's, we find ourselves subconsciously comparing and I do this all the time and I have to kind of check myself and say, no, 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 stay in your lane. And I don't remember who said this, but I'm going to be bougie and say a quote. Um, Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. So if you really stop comparing yourself with others, focus on on who you are, what you want to accomplish, what your dreams are, who you are as a person, and just let your dreams guide you and you'll end up okay. I think you'll be all right. And know your worth is not predicated on what anybody else thinks of you. That took a long time for me to understand. Yeah, you know? I think I think finding self-worth without, you know, it's 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 a it's a difficult thing to do. It's I mean, it's taken me years and I'm still I I I struggle, but I'm light years away from who I was, you know. Yeah. Except 4 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's just finding it within yourself. And yeah, and, that, and that's, and, yeah, yeah. It's all about the rewiring, right? You got to rewire that brain. Because we yeah. were, we were taught as children that we, you know, we didn't matter. We were invisible. Uh, I was just a kid. Wor- <laughs> exactly. Go in the other room, watch TV. Um, I was told I was worthless almost every day. And so it's very difficult to rewire those uh, voices. But once you can get control of that, you know, you're, you're good. You're golden. Just stay, stay, sit in your, sit in your truth, stand in your power and uh, don't compare yourself. Don't compare yourself. That, I think that that's key. That's key mm-hmm. right there. And be a good human being, be, be a good person, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Thank you so much, Christine. I really appreciate you joining me today. Oh, thank you. This was fun. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, that was Christine McDonald, author of the memoir Face Value, From Stripper Pole to Bearing My Soul. For more information on Christine, click on that for- scrolling fortune cookie right there in the middle of your screen. That will actually take you to her book. Also, March's issue of Authentic Insider is out. Christine has contributed to that issue. And check out Authentic Insider at TraumaSurvivorThriver.com. That's TraumaSurvivorThriver.com. You can find Authentic Insider there and past issues as well as episodes of this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. Thank you so much for joining me live today. Join me live next week, March 15th, when I speak with founder of the Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, Melissa Lavasani. We will be discussing how psychedelics helped her heal from postpartum depression and how that led her to create the Psychedelic Medicine Coalition. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Take care.